We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Frick, Baseball's Third Commissioner, the publisher, McFarland, the author, John Carvalho. Please join me as we welcome John to the clubhouse. Thank you. And thank you for coming from, uh, for those of you who may not know, John is a professor at Auburn, so thank you for coming up to uh, warmer New York City for your this Your son event. went to Auburn? Yeah. Uh, who's your son? Class of 89, Peter Kurtz. Yeah, well, that was, that was after I graduated, before I went back, so. Auburn was the site of a historic first for women umpires. Do you know about that? I did not. It's Alabama? Oh, no, Auburn, New York. Yeah, people. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. <laughs> and when, I, when I was uh, editor of the paper, the uh, jazz guy, Deodato, we were expecting him to do a concert, and he sent word that he thought it was Auburn, New York, when he signed the contract, so he wasn't coming. <laughs> it was kind of an insult, you know. But no, not, your, not that yours was. <laughs> See, who knows what we cover in, in, in these discussions. Uh, but if you could just get us going, uh, mm -hmm just to let us know how this particular book came about. Sure. Um, this book came about, it actually started when I was in uh, graduate school. I was doing some work, I'm a history uh, historian, and uh, I was doing some research on ethics in the 1920s and came upon the topic of ghost writing. And so, uh, and it was there that I learned that A, Ford Frick had been a journalist before he was president of the National League, and B, that he was Babe Ruth's ghostwriter. So, uh, you know, and, and so one of the things I say in the book is about journalists is um, for all that journalists complain and criticize, you know, do you really want them to be in charge of anything or for real, or do you want them just to be there, criticize, you know, just let them mess around on the, on the, the, the sports of the news pages. And so that, uh, that first got me interested in him. It also got me interested, another side thing that I do, is I've also written about Bill Tilden, because he was a journalist and a tennis player. So I, I kind of like people who, who bridge those two worlds. And when I found out that uh, Ford Frick surprisingly did not have a biography written about him as long as he was in baseball and all the important things that, um, he was involved with as National League president and then baseball commissioner. I thought, well, I'll, I'll be the one to write it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. I am too, yeah. And so if you could, uh, well, the actual title for those who are listening, because uh, it's actually Frick Asterisk. Asterisk. So we're going to get to the asterisk, mm -hmm. but let's do a few things first. Sure. So uh, if you could just, since you mentioned that he was a, a sports writer and a goat, Babe Ruth's ghost writer, if you could just speak a little bit about that part of his life. Sure. Uh, Ford Frick, uh, originally, he was raised and went to school in Indiana and uh, taught and met his wife in Colorado. And while he was in Colorado, uh, his reporting of a, uh, the Pueblo flood of 1921 caught the eye of Arthur Brisbane, the New York Journal. So he brought him to New York uh, to be a sports writer, and that was, that was Frick's interest. And so when you think about the 1920s and you think about the Babe Ruths, the Jack Dempseys, the Bobby Jones, well, for, for journalism, you also think about sports writers like Ring Lardner, Grantland Rice, Damon Runyon. There was another group there that were the uh, Ford Fricks, um, Gene, Gene Fowler, the, the Bill, um, now I'm blanking on Bill's. The Workaday guys. Ford was not much of a, a literary uh, type like, like Grantland Rice was. He was more the guy who could knock out a lot of uh, copy quickly. So he was known for that. And um, so while he was uh, in New York, uh, Christy Walsh, uh, probably the first sports agent, uh, was looking for ghostwriters to he started a syndicating service that would provide articles by Babe Ruth and these different athletes for the newspapers that um, 
would never mention the ghostwriter, but just give the reader the idea that what they were reading was written by the athletes, you know, kind of like Players' Tribune does now. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, another paper that I'm working on kind of relates Christy Walsh to, to the Players' Tribune. Where, where it's about transparency, but that's another. And, and so um, through that, he also started writing. And so from about the 1921 to 1934, he was part of that group that would travel around with the Yankees, uh, go to spring training with them. And, um, and so that, that, that really was what put him, and it's understood that not only did he ghostwrite for Babe Ruth, he also ghostwrote uh, Babe Ruth's Book of Baseball. And uh, so, um, yeah, that was how that, that relationship started. Very interesting. So now, if we, we go through his uh, sports writing career, the, the next step is National League president? Well, actually, the, uh, yes, but he spent like nine months as National League public relations director. What happened was he had good, re uh, good relationships with uh, particularly John McGraw. And so when the National League was looking about 1934 for a public relations director, McGraw suggested Frick. And Ford at the time had a very successful broadcasting career he had started. He not only would do sports broadcasting, but he hosted um, a weekly classical music opera program. So he, he agreed to be the National League Public Relations Director if they would let him keep his broadcasting gig. And so he, he, he became the Public Relations Director in 34, it was called the Service Bureau Director. Nine months later, the uh, National League President resigned for health reasons and they just elevated him right into it nine months after the fact. So less than a year after leaving sports writing, he was National League president. And what year was that? 34. Starting in 34. And he's National League president until uh, for 17 years? Is 17 that years. Right. That's right. So he's, uh, he's the National League president during integration. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, and, and was very much a supporter of integration. Uh, Jackie Robinson was with the Brooklyn Dodgers who were in the National League. And so, yeah, he, he very much supported, uh, well, I said very much supported. Maybe part of it was, too, uh, like, like Lee, you know, if French Ricky wanted to do that to himself, Ford Frick was willing to let him, so he didn't stop integration. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was under his watch that integration started and, and carried through. So how does he then... Uh... I don't want to completely gloss over his whole time as National League president, but how does he then become the commissioner? Well, there, there's two things. Uh, one of them, and it, to me it's, it's the most evocative moment of the book, was uh, in 1945 when he was actually passed over to be National League president. He was one of the candidates. He had a lot of support, particularly in the media. And uh, as National League president, he was at the meetings uh, was very close to being voted commissioner, and then it all just switched, and they, they chose uh, Happy Chandler, uh, at the time a senator from Kentucky. So to me, that's part of his backstory, is to be at a meeting where you're about to get your dream job of commissioner, have it fall apart with you in that meeting, and then basically have the owners tell you, well, sorry, could you write the news release about this and then could you help him start the job, you know? But he was so loyal. So in, by 1951, uh, Chandler, if you know anything about him, had pretty much worn out his welcome. Um, felt that he had mishandled some things, not so much integration, just some, he mishandled the Mexican League situation, uh, turned some of the owners off, and so they revolted against him. Uh, was that was that the spring of 1951 or the winter the winter meetings? Uh, one of the there was the winter meetings. Yeah, where his contract was supposed to come up of 1950, and they basically wouldn't renew his contract, or or wouldn't endorse the upcoming renewal. So that moved Chandler out of the way, and uh, it came back to Frick. He was he was one of the finalists. He was one of the candidates. Uh, other candidates came up and might have taken the job. I know. Uh, one of them was a, a military guy named um, Rosie O'Donnell, and, um, and uh, he withdrew, it, the Korean War started, and he felt he was needed by his country. So yeah, 
at, at that time, they were ready to give Frick the job that they had denied him six years before and recognize the loyalty that he had shown. So now he, he, he's the commissioner, but before we get into that, in all the extensive research that you did, were there things that uh, really took you off guard or by surprise pre him becoming commissioner, from you know, the rest prior to that in his life? Yes, and I'll tell you the one thing that did, and it relates to a paper that I actually wrote and pre uh, presented to the Society for American Baseball Research about 2008, and that was his role in integration. And at first, the paper that we wrote, okay, there's, there's this story about um, when, when baseball integrated, 1947, and um, rumor came out that the St. Louis Cardinals, or uh, word came to him, this wasn't released yet, were planning to strike rather than play against an African-American baseball player. And uh, supposedly, Frick contacted them and said, um, and did this speech kind of like, well, this is America. And in America, we respect people. And if you go on strike, you'll be suspended for the whole year. And I don't care what it does to baseball, because we're going to make this happen. You know, Dick Young said, all you needed was the Battle Hymn of the Republic playing in the background, you know. And um, at the time, or like I said, about 10 years ago, um, I wrote a paper that speculated that maybe his role in integration was oversold by his friends in the media. Well, from, from doing the research, getting a little more into it, it turned out that that's pretty close to what happened. That, because um, what happened, after that happened, Stanley Wood, Woodward uh, wrote an article about it and, and said, Ford Frick has beaten down a strike uh, that, that opposed integration. And, and he said, and, and Frick won't, won't uh, won't acknowledge this, so I didn't even ask him, and, and it got, the story itself got National Sports Story of the Year for 1947. Well, it turns out that that's exactly what happened. Um, he wasn't the direct source on it. Um, okay, actually, uh, I was joking before about my, this is one of my former students. Nick, I'm glad you made it. Um, a journalism student from Auburn who's now working here in uh, New York, so very proud of him. Yeah, come up here. Um, anyway, um, what happened was a um, team physician for the um, Cardinals knew about this, had heard about the strike, had mentioned it to his friend, one of his good friends, who was a journalist, I think for another newspaper, Rudd Rennie. Rudd knew that if he wrote about it, it would go right back to the doctor, and then the Cardinals would, you know, do whatever they do to doctors who snitch on them. Um, so Rudd turned it over to Woodward. And so really probably what did happen was that they were going to strike and Frick very much acted to stop it. And, and so it, I, I, whereas maybe eight years ago I was saying, well, maybe he didn't deserve the credit. Really from reading that, I thought, no, he, he, he may not have been as strong a supporter in the two-year lead-up when, when Ricky was, was really the lone ranger on it. But once it happened, he, he, he knew that baseball couldn't turn back. And he became a very strong supporter of it. And like I said, I was, I was glad to, to see that aspect of him and that strong support. Now, in, uh, so now as commissioner, other than the asterisk, are there uh, any other... Uh, Anything else that really caught you by surprise in his commissionership reign? Well, uh, I, um, putting that aside. Um, the, thing that, the thing that it's so easy to look back on stuff they didn't know at the time. What's, what's so funny to read when you realize it is how they didn't realize what they had with baseball. I'm sorry, with television. Um, as television started, they were very much operating from a radio mindset. Each team should just have their own uh, TV broadcast, have their own radio broadcast. That's the best way to do it. And when, uh, like when, the, when, when ABC, ABC came to them in the mid-60s with an idea for Monday night baseball, and they were all very much like, who wants to watch baseball? And 
why, why do we all want to do this together? You know, we've got our own thing. They were, they were still kind of getting used to the idea of what we have now with a league having its own contract. With the, the, so even starting back in the 50s, they didn't know what they'd have. Um, they would do national, the only national contracts were for the All-Star Game and the World Series. And with each successive one, the numbers were just getting going more and more, getting higher, and, and I think they were all amazed by it. So it, to me, it, it's funny to see, and, and of course they had no idea. No one knew that, uh, you know, in 1950 they weren't saying, you know what, this television thing's gonna make us a lot of money, so let's go for it. Instead they were going, well, I don't know if television is worth it. So that by 1965, yeah, then it started to get on and started all the other effects that it had. Okay, so we're gonna go back a little bit before 65, Sure. Since that it is the title, Frick Asterisk, uh, if you could just give us, a, a, for some people who listening who may not know, or if, just a little background on what that means and, and leading up to what happened. Sure, and that's, that's pretty much what he's, what he's most known for, thanks to Billy Crystal um, and his, <laughs> his HBO uh, movie, 61. But yeah, in, um, in 1961, uh, both... Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were uh, starting to, to hit a lot of home runs. Uh, expansion had uh, thinned out the pitching pool a little bit, it was felt. So uh, all of a sudden, by midseason, it, it seemed like Babe Ruth's home run record of 60 was uh, in peril. So uh, in the middle of the season, Ford Frick announced with a statement and a press conference that unless the record was broken um, in 154 games, it would not be recognized. And um, now he didn't, he didn't do the asterisk. He just said it would somehow have to be uh, set apart as its own record in a different number of games. And it was kind of a raucous press conference where he was doing that. I have a feeling all press conferences were raucous where baseball writers were concerned. And Dick Young said, what, are you going to put an asterisk on it? And that stuck. Um, as they also realized that Frick had been Babe Ruth's ghostwriter, they were wondering, was he really protecting the integrity of the game or was he protecting his uh, former buddy and hero? And so at the beginning, as, as the, the chapter notes, um, he had a lot of support for it, even from sports writers. As time went on, it, uh, it, it eroded, and it became really a source of derision for him. But uh, yeah, at the, at the, again, at the time, given what expansion was causing and everything, some people thought it was a reasonable, although, although again, it had, it had its critics. Um, not something that you would normally expect him to do, but he did step in. Okay, so I think that's a good spot to see if somebody wants to ask a question about that or anything else. Doug? My question is, uh, recently uh, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature because of his lyrics. Didn't Scully has broadcast baseball for 60 years? Yeah. Wow, you know, um, Vin, if anybody does, it would be Vin. Now, the problem with him, I mean, the problem with his candidacy for the Nobel Prize is that when you're, it's spoken and it's, you know, it disappears in air, I think if you transcribed it, um, the good thing you got to keep in mind about Dylan, he's his baseball fan, too. <laughs> you know, he did, he did his, uh, his baseball program. No, I, I am, I'm a Vin Scully fan. I really am. Um, now, if I can show my, no, I don't know if I should get in trouble with this in a podcast. Should I say something to get myself in trouble? Uh, not a Vern Lundquist fan. He doesn't uh, listen, it's okay. That's, that's good, yeah, it's football. Because to me, what, what sets him apart is Vin kept his quality high. We're talking 60 years. You know, the previously stated individual seemed to get lost during games, and Auburn fans would be like, that's not how he pronounced that, that player pronounces his name. That's not the guy who caught them. But anyway, so with Vin, I, I don't know. I, I, he'll obviously, um, 
Has he won the he's won the Ford Frick Award, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He's going to say that you don't have to retire to get that. He's not a Hall of Famer. Right. Oh, obviously should. So maybe mention what the Ford Frick Award is. The Ford Frick Award uh, that was established in '78, uh, I think, um, to, or '74 maybe, soon after his retirement, to honor the outstanding broadcaster in baseball, the equivalent of the Spink Award that goes to the the, the sports writer. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm certain if, if Vin, I'm certain, well, you said, yeah, and I, I, I'll, I'll agree with your call there. I think, uh, <laughs> I'll protest that call. Do Go ahead. Know, do you uh, know somebody named Eleanor Engel? Are you aware of Ford Frick's um, relationship to the Eleanor Engel um, debacle? Was that um, the player or yes. the, that they brought in yes. or, or the umpire? The umpire was Maureen Galvin. Yes, and she's mentioned in the book, too. Oh, wow. okay. um, but, um, yeah. Well, Eleanor Engel, did she, was it Wilkes-Barre? It was uh, Harrisburg. Harrisburg, yeah. And, uh, Would you speak to those two incidents? For well, he, in, in his own way, he let the minor leagues deal with that. Uh, maybe Troutman, uh, who said, no woman shall play uh, baseball, and Ford Frick agreed with that and threw in a couple well, of insults. Well, the, the papers gave him a pass, frankly. Well, the, the papers gave him a pass. He had no business getting involved in and basically threatened every manager in the minor leagues by telling them that, that he, they would get fired. Yes. If they ever tried yeah, he, he kind of came, came behind Troutman. You're right with that, yeah. While he left the decision to him, yeah, he definitely piled it on, yeah. I'm sorry, Lee had a... How, how long did he do that because um, it was Andre Castellanos' show. Um, I don't know the exact, I'd say one or two years. Uh, when, when he became National League president, he had to give up the, 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 the radio gig, and he said he took a cut in pay. But, um, yeah, so it was up until uh, September of, uh, or December of 34. Also, uh, Warren Giles, who succeeded him as uh -huh. National League president, after the Giants and Dodgers left for the West Coast, had the temerity to say that we don't need New York publicly. What was Frick's view of that uh, whole? Oh yeah, well yeah, being in New York, <laughs> when um, yeah when the Dodgers and the Giants left, oh, I left New York with one team, and and like they were saying, that means that for 81 games a year there wouldn't be a New York game going on. And the Yankees were saying, uh, and maybe, maybe Giles was trying to, to, to as, as sports people tend to do badly, influence the negotiations. The Yankees were saying, well, well we should get uh, the right of refusal of any new franchises coming in because that's the, the 1901 contract. Um, and so, yeah, they, I think Giles was trying to say that to kind of uh, not, not uh, say the opposite, which would be, dear God, we need another team in New York any way we can get it. And uh, I don't know if it was at the same time as the, the Continental League was starting with the... Well, the that, that started a year or two later. Right. But, but what was Frick's position? I mean, did he... Uh, oh, I think I honestly think Frick really wanted a second team in New York, and was doing everything he could to get the Giant or the the Yankees, and was even kind of stating that no, they didn't have the right of first refusal. They changed, I think they changed the rules so that any city without, um, I'm sorry, any city with two million people could have a second team without you know any right of first refusal, or no one could stop that. So no, he being. A New Yorker and having brought the the the, national, the the major league office from Chicago and then Cincinnati where it was with Chandler to New York, I think he really wanted a second team and and one reason why he was so uh, when the owners decided to invite the four Continental League teams and one of them was the Mets, I think that's one reason why he was so in favor of the idea. In regards to that. Uh Oh. West Coast, and he saw money, and so he said, I'm out of here, I'm going to the West Coast, because prior to that time, I think every, 
team they moved to was Houston and Mississippi. Right. The, the furthest West team was St. Louis. Yeah, and, and that's actually, that's something that Frick mishandled. Uh, Frick kind of held out the promise that the Pacific Coast League would become the third major league. And everyone knew that was not going to happen because besides L.A. and San Francisco, there were no large stadiums, no large metropolitan areas. But, um, and, and Frick, when it came to, to franchises moving, Really, it started, not only did you have um, the only, the, the furthest west team being in St. Louis, but you had what, you had two teams in St. Louis, two teams in Philadelphia, two teams in Boston. So they actually started moving even before westward when the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee um, and the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore. You actually had that movement started. The Kansas City, yeah, and and Frick on those matters uh, was was very much kind of like they are today, you know. Side note: for all that Ford Frick is criticized, commissioners today are a lot like him and and run their their leagues a lot like him. His thing was just, if you're gonna move, just shut up and move, you know. Don't talk about it. Um, now, where the the Giants and the and the the uh, Dodgers were concerned, they were kind of negotiating in public so much with O'Malley going to uh, Los Angeles saying, I'm just checking out, you know, the minor league situation there again in my private plane. And with Stoneham uh, kind of saying, well, you know, being in touch with um, San Francisco and, and saying, you know, if you guys pass that bond issue, that sure makes you an interesting area. What Frick did say was, no talking about this in public. Don't talk about it until after the season ends, and, um, and don't negotiate. So that was about all he would do to stop it. But yeah, O'Malley definitely knew it was, and because and, what was it, um, you know, uh, the, the Dodgers' home field, uh, now I'm blank, I want to say the polo grounds. Ebbets Field. Ebbets field. It was just, you know, there was no place to grow, and there was no, I love those pictures of old uh, stadiums where there's no parking, you know, it's like, built, like Wrigley Field, buildings all around them. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, Stoneham, they were ready to move, yeah, and that's where the money was, yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, former Commissioner Happy Chandler earlier, uh, just curious, uh, any reason why he got uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, they, they, they do that. <laughs> you know, it's a Oh, no, no, yeah, Chandler, and that was d definitely a courtesy because not only was Chandler not a favorite of the owners, uh, they hated that he had that high tenor voice and he would sing my old Kentucky home at, at any, the drop of a hat, and they didn't like that. But what personally I didn't appreciate was after they replaced him, and they replaced him, Frick as far as we know, was not part of those machinations. You know, it was Fred Sag, uh, the St. Louis guy, because they got into something about Sunday games. Del Webb, who uh, Chandler called the most refreshingly ignorant son of a bitch I've ever met. Um, he didn't like him because he, he wanted to start investigations into gambling connections. But he blamed Frick. And so after Frick was named commissioner, Chandler became this constant pain in the butt, you know, talking publicly and saying things like, uh, well, if, if, uh, if Frick's going to be the, the commissioner, who's going to be Edgar Bergen? Because he's just a dummy, you know. And, or I think he said, uh, when, they, when they named Frick commissioner, he said, I'm sorry they chose to leave the office vacant. Um, and and, and he, he would constantly talk that way. So that's why I'm surprised that they would set that aside. But again, that's part of, I think, the leadership that, that Frick gave, where he understood that where, while Chandler didn't consider it necessarily negative to behave that way, Frick knew that if he stayed above it, it was better for baseball. When uh, Frick goes through with Babe Ruth, was there any attempt to know the mind of Ruth? In other words, was his writing as a ghostwriter for Babe Ruth? 
any difference than his other writings? Yes and no. Now, he actually, he said that he would talk to Babe and, 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 and knew him because they did travel together a lot more closely. and on, They were on trains at that point, so the road trips were longer. Um, still, you would read, and, and the, the book excerpts some of them, you would read some of the things that he would quote uh, Babe Ruth as saying, and you'd go, how does Babe Ruth know that? You know, he'd be mentioning operas and literature and everything, or be using um, uh, statistics and everything from the previous season that you're like, Babe Ruth probably wasn't, you know, at a newspaper writing all of this down. <laughs> I mean, one guy pointed out Babe Ruth called everybody a champ or, or a buddy because he didn't know, couldn't remember their names, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was like 50-50, much more than 90-10, you know, Babe and, and Ford Frick working together. You, you can see Ford Frick's writing style. What kind of interviews were you able to do for this book? Was there any family available? Um, yeah, th and that was part of the fun of it. And actually, uh, the first interview that I had was with uh, Ford Frick's granddaughter, Kelly, Kelly Richards Frick, because she lived in Atlanta. And we went up to see her in Decatur. Now, the one thing about this book is that Ford Frick did not leave archives. Um, Why not? Uh, we don't know. You know, and his grandkids don't know. Um, when, when I started the book, I, I said to Auburn, I said, um, would you pay for me to travel to the Baseball Hall of Fame to look at archives in the name of research? And they said, sure. So I, I planned a trip up. When I called, they said, don't bother. We can, we can create a photocopy of everything we have on him for $70 you know, 25 cents a page. So they just sent that stuff down. Side note, I couldn't get that reimbursed by Auburn. Because, <laughs> you know, state bureaucracies, when I said that, they, they, said, they said, oh, well, you were supposed to travel. And, you know, we would have reimbursed you $700 for a trip up there, but we won't reimburse you $70. And, uh, so uh, Kelly had some stuff. And so I went and visited her. And one of the things she had that um, is mentioned in a later chapter that um, John Laughlin uh, of uh, Park University in St. Louis and I did a thing on, we all even found two chapters of a fictional book that he had started to write that was never published, Autobiography of a Ball Player. And uh, so different poems that he wrote uh, and things like that. So he did that. Then, while I was writing the book, I went to, uh, I flew to Denver to meet his uh, grandson, Ford Frick II. His uh, father is uh, Frederick Frick. And uh, now Ford Frick II, he had some great stuff. First of all, he has uh, photos of his father with John F. Kennedy. He has a photo of his, of his uh, grandfather's um, uh, cigarette ads that he did. He and his wife did a, a magazine ads for cigarettes, and he said he, he got a carton of cigarettes a month for, for, <laughs> for years. Uh, Ford, not, not the grandson. Um, he also, Ford Frick II still has in his house the Norman Rockwell original um, Grandpa at the Plate that um, was in his grandfather's office as lead president, and, and we saw that. It's right there on the wall. <laughs> Um, one of the things he had, and this is, this is I'm going to nerd out on y'all, um, when, when uh, Ford Frick went to New York, and again, there was a lot of different stories as to how he came to his attention, to Brisbane's attention, he told the story of a printer who had written a letter to Arthur Brisbane about that, about Frick, and said, you need to, to do this guy. And I was just going through this stuff, I was visiting with um, Ford II, and he has that letter. He actually had the letter that the printer had written to Brisbane. Uh, you know, I think they were probably a little more respectful of paper copies. And, and, and I, I, I was like, do you realize what this letter is? You know, and so I took pictures of it and everything. We didn't dare photocopy anything. Um, 
to, to ruin it. But yeah, things like that were in that, in his copy. And one, one of the hopes is that, that Ford and Kelly will put even what little they have together, whether it's at DePaul where he went to school or Colorado College where he taught that there will be archives uh, for Ford Frick. Did you talk to Buzzy Vivesi or any of his people? Did not, did not. Yeah, because Buzzy was Frederick's uh, best friend in, in, um, in college. And I and think Buzzy's parents died and, and Ford sort of became almost a father. Almost a father to him. And there's even a story that um, for whatever reason in 1950 he had said to Buzzy, you know, I want to give up baseball and I want to just go be a newspaper editor. Would you come and be my business manager? And Buzzy said, well, I kind of like being in baseball. And then a year later, Ford Frick became commissioner. But yeah, they, they, it started in college. So. Just out of interest, when, he, when, he, when Ford Frick said that, was it, it was 1950, you said, mm -hmm. was he worn down by the reaction from Jackie Robinson or he was worn down by uh, the national, his duties? Like why, why would the National League president want to just? If I had to guess, I would yeah. think he was probably getting worn down by Chandler. And, and kind of the, the, the drama that his, his leadership style was causing. I think that probably had him just maybe ready to quit. Right. And uh, any other questions? What yes. was his relationship like with um, Will Hartage? Hartage. It seemed like they were just kind of two sides to the same coin. Uh, Harridge was American League president yeah. for the whole time that Frick was, uh, and, and it just seemed like he and Harridge really kind of formed a, a duo, because back then, now they don't even have league presidents yeah. anymore. And, and um, to them, league distinctiveness was important. And, and so uh, together, I, I think they, they really were kind of equal deputies who really worked together. Well, I say they worked together well. They would have their disputes. But I think there really was a confederacy of equals with those two working under Landis. And I think Landis needed that, you know, and, and probably made it nice, nice for Chandler, too. So I know um, they, they disagreed on um, the spitball when... when Ford Frick began to want to see the spitball because uh, Frick thought that home runs were boring, you know, and, and maybe again he, he wanted fewer home runs to help out Babe, and and so he wanted to bring back the spitball. And Harridge thought that was ridiculous, um, but but beyond that they they were pretty pretty. I think they were. So they so they weren't like oil and water. Oh no, I, I think they worked together very okay. well. In fact, Harridge even made it known that he did not want to be commissioner. He was not a rival to Frick for that. What about his relations with Landis, who was also from Indiana? Uh, I, think, I think he looked at Landis as almost like a mentor, even for all of uh, Landis's uh, crankiness and, and obstructiveness on integration. You know, I think, I think he, he endeared himself to Landis, and, and maybe it was because Landis allowed he and Harridge to, to pretty much run their own leagues and, uh, and, and not, uh, not interfere with them. And th this is maybe a, a little bit of an unfair question. If it is, you can not answer it. Yeah. Uh, we, the name Landis came up. Happy Chandler's come up quite a bit. We haven't really discussed commissioners after that. but uh, And you mentioned a few times Frick mishandled a couple things. He was criticized, mm -hmm. fairly or unfairly. From your research, where would you put him in the, in the, in the range of commissioners that base, Major League Baseball has had? It's probably a tough thing. Like that, yeah, it's a tough thing to actually make that whatever, ranking, but, you know. But um, I would say Frick was, was better than he was given credit for because another of the things that, that was in his, um, in the what few archives there were, uh, there were a couple of speeches that he made to the owners and Frick was known, supposedly, well, I won't just say supposedly, uh, when Frick was commissioner, the owners were perceived as running things. And Frick was just, Frick would say, it's up to them to make the changes, it's up to me to, 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 to put them in motion. 
Anytime someone would say, Frick, sh uh, Ford, <laughs> should, the, should this happen? He would say, that's up to the owners. Um, but uh, there were a couple of speeches that he made to the owners at the winter meetings. He would meet with them for dinner beforehand. And on the one hand, he would say, okay, now this is up to you. It's not up to me, but these are the things you need to be concerned about. And he would lay them out for them. You've got to do something about television. You've got to do something about labor. You've got to do something about slow play. Because goodness sakes, back then games were like two hours long. You know, <laughs> and that was too slow. And he would say, what you choose to do is up to you. But you've got to do something about it. And that gives a picture of a commissioner who's not just saying, whatever you guys want is fine with me, but rather saying, here are some things that you guys have got to work on and, and, and very much pushing them on it. What do you think, and I know this is more when Louie Kuhn was commissioner, mm -hmm. what do you think in doing your biography of Frank, his relationship with Marvin Miller would have been? <laughs> yeah, boy, on labor, Frick got, he got such a pass because he actually had canon as uh, first he had Mar you know um, David Norman Norman Lewis as the, the and, and Lewis was very much a, a thorn in his side the first guy that they called on who demanded to be present whenever they would talk about things and Frick didn't like that and that was that was why he was saying to the owners the players have a union they're not calling it that but it's a union and you have to do something about it um, and then when, when Lewis left uh, and I will confess to this. Um, it was uh, this is one of my favorite lines in the book. You know, there there began to be friction, and, and I said, and Lewis had uh, bigger fish he could charge by the hour, so he uh, he 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 left the players, and Cannon took over, and Cannon wanted to be Robert Cannon uh, wanted to be commissioner himself, so he very much was like, you players got it good, you don't want to make waves and everything. So there was labor peace until Miller came in. Um, I don't think Frick would have known what to do with Miller. My goodness, because um, yeah, when I was um, reading uh, in, in not only Bowie Kuhn's book, but Marvin Miller's book, the way that he got the players together and was like, folks, you're the show. You know, like I always say to my students, no one goes to watch the owner's own. They go to watch the players play. You know, and so when, when he got them to see that they had um, uh, that power. And, and Frick, even, even when his memoirs came out and the reserve clause was in the process of, of being eliminated, still was, was talking about, oh my gosh, what happens to baseball if a player can just leave the team he plays for and go to another team? It'll be the death of the sport, you know, and it, it turned out it's just fine. Um, so yeah, I think... I, I, I think Miller, like I say, he wouldn't have known what to do with Miller, and that would have worked against him. Uh, I think because Miller pretty much did that to first Eckert and, and then Kuhn. Was the thing you discovered eight years ago that made you feel like there would have been a strike by the players, could you run by that? Because I'm just a skeptic about, I know they were upset with Robinson, I know it's in your book. You mentioned that this might have happened in spring training when it was more likely. I mean, when, when this alleged strike was supposed to come, was it yeah. ready in the middle of the season? You know, it was May. It was May. Yeah, I, I shouldn't oversell the, the possibility of the strike. What I was really trying to stress was that there was definitely some talk of it, that it, and it wasn't just locker room talk that was squelched. It was, it was talk that was, that was getting somewhere. And that Frick pretty much stopped. So, um, yeah, I I'm sorry. Did I answer your question, Lee? No, no. It, it's very it's complicated. And in, in looking through your book, which I just bought tonight, you did bring up the business about the, uh, the, the spring training. Mm -hmm. And there was also, it's not in your book, but the, the report they were supposed to strike opening day against Robinson. Where I'm skeptical is that this is still the age of the reserve system. And guys that strike, you know, and don't play the game, I mean, 
they're going to get thrown out of baseball. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I would throw in is, a, uh, is what was it, the, the report that uh, Lee McPhail, not Lee McPhail, uh, Larry, Mc, Larry, Larry McPhail um, had commissioned about integration where uh, they took the vote on accepting, uh, and, and it was the, the straw poll on integration, and it was uh, 15 to 1 uh, against it, and the one being Branch Rickey. Yeah. Well, and he, of course, told the story two years later, and then he backtracked. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's why it's almost just more academic than usual. But I mean, I, what impressed me about what I've seen in your book, you really dug deep. If there's no answer, there's no answer. I, I just get my back gets up when I hear people say so blithely that there would be a strike of right. players when the, the cost would have been huge. Yeah, yeah. We we, didn't, we never had to find out. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was very much uh, there uh, strongly. Even though yeah, that might have just been how they, they let steam off, you know, yeah. by doing that. Yeah. Uh, last thing. I'm, Mr. Levin was mentioning the strikes. Did um, was Fort Frick aware of the petition in spring training when Leo DeRocher famously dragged out all of his players and read him the riot act, or was that just between Ricky and? Um, that might have was that a Ricky thing? The petition yeah. in spring training. Dixie well, Walters. Again, the alleged petition. The alleged petition. <laughs> <laughs> but you with know, DeRocher said, you know, what yeah. you can do with where you can put yeah. that alleged. Mm -hmm. Did Frick know about that, or was that really just because? I didn't. I didn't have any any uh, indication that he he was aware of that part of it. I think he. Okay. No. He might have been aware of it, but but he let. Basie again, who has been called the yeah. rogue raconteur, yeah. who when they called up Robinson the day that DeRocher got suspended and Ricky went through the roof because DeRocher would have defended Robinson, and mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff wouldn't have happened if DeRocher had been there. Yeah. Then this. Son asked him, "Don't you want to tell Chandler that uh, Robinson's being called up?" And he says, "No, it's a league matter." <laughs> That's right; it's a league matter. And so Frick probably knew about it. Oh yeah. yeah In fact, Frick signed off on it. Yeah, yeah. signed off on all, all such moves. Yeah. Is he is is he in the Hall of Fame, Frick? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He. he in fact, um, that's probably his farewell speech. Uh, soon after he made his, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame and made the, made his speech. He uh, began to suffer a stroke and, and a fall and, and things like that. When did he pass? Uh, Seventy eight. John, thank you, Lee. Thanks, Lee. Uh, that the grandson had some pictures. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a picture of him in blackface. You mentioned that he had performed in blackface in '48 or '47. Right. Does a picture exist of that? Uh, Rob, I, he didn't. Ha I, I I didn't see one, but uh, the reason I say it is when I was reading the book, I expected to see it on the next page. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that would be a very appropriate. Yeah, what he's talking about is for for all that he did with integration, Frick actually performed in blackface at um, the um, they had a February dinner where there would be entertainment, and th there's something that was like. Uh, the Mr. Bones routine where uh, they would do the over the Amos and Andy type voice and and with malaprops and, and words and everything and, and uh, they would ask a question and uh, you know Mr. Bones what what does you say and and everything and, and they would they would do it and, and yeah and Frick until he was nationally president would, would participate in that as did I think I said the guy who wrote the Jackie Robinson story, um, not not Gallagher. Um, yeah, Arthur Mann. Um, yeah, so uh, wouldn't that have been a nice picture to have in there? So I, I sense that you 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 give him credit for um, growing into the role of uh, um, wanting integration to succeed in mm -hmm. the major leagues. He might have been a little resistant at first, but he came to realize the value of it. Uh, so I'm curious uh, that you know about Maureen Galvin, the woman that was assigned to umpire minor league games, and that he then, for some reason, prohibited from doing that. So what is your take on his um, stance on women?
women's participation in even minor league baseball back then. And also, do you know, because uh, a lot of women that I know who play or coach or umpire baseball now um, have this idea that there was a memo that circulated at the time of either the Eleanor Engel incident or the Maureen Galvin, which was, I think, 61. Eleanor Engel was 1952. Mm -hmm. She was... Um, uh, League president in '52 and commissioner in '61. Well, he was he was commissioner in '52 also. Uh, he had just taken right, over. just taken over. He had just right. become commissioner. Right. That's correct. Um, um, so I'm just curious what what your take is about. Um, I didn't I didn't see it towards women and if there was actually such a memo that he circulated saying that if any manager ever tries to hire a woman player or umpire. I didn't see that memo. He made the statement, and I don't know if the statement took the place of the memo or if it's one of those things that disappeared okay. with his uh, archives. It's, it's my understanding that there was never such a memo, that it basically was just a threat. Right. I, it, it was, you know, like it, it would have been like an email today that circulated around and went viral and people talked about it, but it wasn't really a command right. or a, a directive or something. Too smart to put it as a memo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, you know, and, and for all that we talk about, and, and this, this actually, I have interest in this as a journalism professor, because um, during integration, there was also discrimination against African-American sports writers. They weren't allowed in the press box. They weren't allowed in the hotels. Um, Wendell Smith had to interview Frick. Um, no, he, he could interview him in his hotel room because he couldn't interview him in the press box. Um, yet with women, like you were saying, first of all, women players, uh, we aren't even close to that, you know, uh, to where it is with integration. And even by the 1970s, women were not allowed in the press box. Yeah, it wasn't just that no women were, were sports writers. It was the, the, the rule, no women in the press box. So I think maybe the, the, the leadership, including Ford Frick, found it much easier to minimize and ban women than African Americans or Hispanics or any other non-white race, you know, and and without question, and without being questioned on it, I should say. So, so he did it just because he could. Did it because he could, and because, whereas there might have been disputes about integration, uh, there was no disputes about sexism. <laughs> Sadly. Good point. Yes. Yeah. No, good much safer ground. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Any other question? My family doesn't want to ask me an embarrassing question here <laughs> about my lack of baseball skills, and here I am <laughs> writing about baseball, or did I spend as much time writing it as I did reading when I was little uh, until my mother had to kick me outside because I was, no. All the family secrets. Yeah. We'll leave that till uh, the podcast is over. There you go. Uh, but for, uh, on that note, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Again, the name of the book Frick, asterisk, baseball's third commissioner, published by McFarland, written by John Carvalho. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>